Recovery Elevator, episode 161. So I wake up every morning saying to myself, okay, today's the day I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink as much as I did yesterday. I'm serious about it today. And at 5.30 or sooner every single day after that, I would be drinking. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 42.54 months. On today's podcast, we've got Ryan. He's 35 years old from Dallas, Texas, and he's been sober since January 1st, 2016. Before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. If you haven't done so already, Make sobriety your number one priority. You might be saying to yourself, wait a second, Paul. I've got three kids, a mortgage, and a standard poodle named Bennigan who needs to be walked in the morning and night. Well, first off, if you have a standard poodle named Bennigan, I've got a standard poodle named Ben, and we need to get them on a play date. But back on topic, here's another way of phrasing what I just said. You need to make something bigger than your problems. Okay, sounds easy enough, Paul. I guess I can skip forward to the interview segment of this podcast because this one is a no-brainer. Sobriety is bigger than my problems. Sobriety numero uno, check. Hang on a sec there. So it's hard to prioritize a small task sheet, let alone goals in life. So hear me out. There are no shortage of paradoxes in recovery. You don't have to change much. You just have to change everything. When we surrender, we find freedom. When we admit we are powerless, we become empowered. We are a selfish lot of people, and in order to get sober, we need to get out of our heads and be of service to others. I know. Recovery can be confusing, and I've actually done podcast episodes with that exact same title. Making sobriety your number one priority may seem selfish, but it's not, and here's why. There was no possible way I could have been present or to be of service to anybody else besides myself when I was drinking. I made plenty of half-assed attempts, but I wasn't able to emotionally be present for other people when I was drinking. Alcohol had simply robbed me of that ability. We also need to make our recovery a priority in a time commitment sense. How much time should we be dedicating towards sobriety to make it a priority? Well, probably the same amount of time you dedicated towards your drinking. At this time, you might be adding up the hours on your left hand that you spent drinking. Your one, two, three, four, five. Okay, we'll jump to the right hand. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Holy shit, ten hours a week? You're saying, Paul, I need to spend ten hours per week on my recovery? Well, if you spent that much time on drinking, then the short answer is yes. Back to what I said earlier. Back to what I said a couple minutes ago. Make something bigger than your monthly bills you have to pay, than the grass in your backyard that never stops growing. Make something bigger than the fender bender your son Leroy got into last week. Make that something bigger sobriety. 
make this a solid line in the sand that no matter what, I'm not going to drink. Repeat after me. None of this matters if I stay sober. None of this daily mundane shit matters as long as I don't drink. There was a time in early 2015, about seven months after I got sober, being an entrepreneur, I took on way more than I can handle, and I was trying to set up a credit card processing system. I entered all the numbers provided by my bank into the credit card processing software and no connection. Called the bank, they said it's the other person's problem. Called them, well, guess what they said? It's the bank's problem. Fast forward several hours on the phone being ping-ponged back and forth, I was in full total meltdown mode and a drink seemed like a pretty good idea. When I say meltdown mode, I was in the grass outside crying on my hands and knees. Not my proudest moment. Wait, take that back. That is a very proud moment in my sobriety because I didn't drink over it. And I remember sitting there on the grass, life had completely put me in my place. And then I thought of something. I said, I'm not going to drink over this. And none of this matters unless I drink. And instantly, a wave of calm and ease came over me. And with that ease and calm, I was able to call the bank and the credit card processing company. I leveraged my sobriety. No joke on that one. I said, hey, I've been sober about seven months. This situation right here, it's putting me pretty close to a drink. And the person on the phone was like, hang on a sec. Heard footsteps, got the right person on the phone. Problem solved. So let's try something for a second. I want you to think of the most pressing issue in your life right now and just sit with that issue. Perhaps you might notice a shift in your breathing. Your heart rate might be elevating. Your mood might be changing. Then tell yourself and tell the problem, none of this matters if I stay sober and I'm not going to be drinking over it. Tell yourself and the problem, this isn't a big deal. But what is a big deal is my sobriety. Tell yourself everything's going to be okay as long as we don't drink. How do you feel now? While writing this podcast episode, I did the same exercise myself. I thought of a couple issues in my life right now and my breathing elevated, heart rate elevated, and then I thought about how none of it matters, how the majority of these problems are gravity problems and I can't help them anyways, and the number one priority in my life is my sobriety. So today, March 19th, 2018, number one on my priority list is sobriety. But it wasn't always like that. When I first started this journey, my priority list went something like this. You know, you got family, you got friends, got a poodle named Ben, got third eye blind, got girls, I got functioning brakes on my cars, I got sweet Bluetooth headphones, sobriety, a stock fridge, and an internet bill that needs to be paid on time. That wasn't a, a recipe for success for my own sobriety. And after each relapse, valuable lessons were learned and sobriety slowly seemed to notch higher on the list. Now today, my priority list oddly looks the exact same except insert sobriety at the top. So if you successfully prioritize your sobriety, you may experience the following. A less sporadic, disorganized, and unpredictable life. A welcome feeling of calmness when you realize, oh yeah, this isn't a big deal as long as I stay sober. You're going to experience less weddings ruined. You're probably going to experience more than 30, 60, or 90 days of sobriety, and much more. You're going to experience less skin knees. If you're in a book club, you're probably going to read the book. Overall, you're going to experience a happier life. So what are some ways to prioritize your sobriety? Well, you got to learn to say no. And I recommend you seriously practice this, verbally and internally. Practice saying no to drinks. Visualize yourself in a precarious situation and successfully say no to a drink. 
Say no, especially in early sobriety, that everything that causes the gut to do even a fourth of a somersault. If people question your no, tell them the truth, and you'll most likely gain another person on your recovery team. To piggyback off what I just said, another way to prioritize your sobriety is let others in on your priority list. It's going to be tough to maintain sobriety at the top of that list if others don't know where it is. Mom, dad, I love you guys. No offense. In fact, you guys already know this, that sobriety is the number one thing on my list. While I'm recording this, I'm looking back behind me. I see Ben on his pillow taking a nap. Ben, I'm sorry. You're not number one on my list. It's sobriety. Because if sobriety goes, sorry, Ben, no more walks, fetch, all that fun stuff. Another way to prioritize your sobriety is to act yourself into making this a priority. Just like I told myself I was done drinking for the rest of my life, oh, say thousands of times, simply telling yourself sobriety is the most important thing in your life isn't enough. Sure, it's a great start, and this internal declaration should simplify some things, but you're going to have to take that first action, second action, third action, to show yourself and others you're serious. Okay, now let's hear from someone else who has made sobriety their priority in life. Ryan, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Ryan, I'm great. Thanks for asking. And let's get right into this. Ryan, when was your last drink? My last drink was December 31st of 2015. Nice. So sounds like 1-1. So January 1st, 2016 was a New Year's resolution. And I read read a couple weeks ago the average New Year's resolution lasts only 17 days. Man, yours is uh, stuck for a little over 380, 90 days. That's awesome. Nice job. Yeah, this this was definitely not a New Year's resolution for me. This was this was a must. I, I couldn't continue drinking the way that I was drinking. So it's definitely not like I was like, oh, December, uh, January first, I'm going to give it up. It was, you know, it wasn't my first shot at giving it up. It just that's the that's the time that stuck for me. As a matter of fact, the day before January first, we were at my mother's house for Christmas, and I had been sort of, you know, sneaking off and drinking when nobody was paying attention and. I got busted doing it, and so the 31st, I felt like I was going to have like an, an ugly withdrawal, mm-hmm. so I ended up in the emergency room on the 31st, and that night, I guess, is when I decided to, to kick it for good this time. Yeah, and I'm excited to dive more into your story and hear all, hear all about your journey of how you got sober and what's keeping you sober, but before we get any further, Ryan, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from. How old are you? What you do for a living? Uh, do you have a family? Do you have any pets? And what do you like to do for fun, Ryan? Sure. Uh, I live in Dallas, Texas. I work uh, in the creative department at an ad agency. I have a family. I have a little boy who's going to be three in May. And we also have a 10-year-old black lab named Winona. And for fun, uh, right now, it's really all about our, our kid. It's, uh, it's you know making plans every weekend to try to keep him entertained. And every every now and then we we enjoy going scuba diving. That was something that we we really loved doing before nice. uh, we had kids. Yeah, we would go. We 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 dove all over the Caribbean. It's a big hobby of ours, and uh, and we get to do it every now and then still, but not as often as we used to. What's the coolest fish or underwater aquatic life you've you've seen? I mean, we've seen it all down in the Caribbean, so it's hard to hard to say what's the coolest. Tiger shark. We've never seen any like any dangerous sharks like that but we definitely uh when we were in belize we did a dive where they like chum the water Mm -hmm. 
so, you know, you go down to the bottom and everybody kind of sits in a circle and they open this bucket of chum and like, you know, probably like 50 nurse sharks, which aren't, aren't dangerous at all, but like 50 nurse sharks kind of swarmed all around us. That was, that was pretty cool. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. Actually, I meant to say yeah. whale shark. Yeah. Tiger sharks are really dangerous, but whale sharks, I got certified in, uh, off the coast of Honduras, uh, Ro- not Roatan. Oh, Roatan. No, no, the other smaller, uh, uh, Utila. Utila. Utila or something? Yeah, yeah, Utila, yeah. And our boat arrived. We got to the spot. with all these other boats. They're like, oh, a huge whale shark was here two minutes ago. I'm like, okay, thanks for telling us that. Um, it's gone now, but we'll, we'll still check out the other cool stuff. Yeah. They so, probably had pictures to show you. Yeah, they did, and I wasn't in any of them. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's, <laughs> overall, it's still pretty cool. Um, that's awesome that you've got an awesome hobby like that that you're getting back into. Uh, and Ryan, let's back it up a little bit. You're 35 years old. Hey, we got something in common there. Great age. Are you Are you 1982? 82, yeah. That's a great vintage, Ryan. That's that's we got we we're, we're doing big things here. Um, yeah. So let's back it up. When did you first notice? Like, wait a second. Maybe this alcohol thing isn't all it's marketed to be. I might not be drinking like a normal person. What is going on? So there's kind of two answers to that. I guess the the first answer is. When I realized that drinking affected me differently than everybody, I was in college. And the way I could tell was we would go out uh, on a weekend, you know, and I feel like we were drinking like normal college students were, which meant, you know, Thursday to Sunday sometimes, definitely Friday to Sunday. But what I started noticing about my sophomore year of college was that if I drank from Thursday to Sunday, if I quit drinking on Sunday, my body reacted physically and that was something that I had never heard anybody talk about, never seen anybody go through. But my body would go through physical withdrawals, even from like what most would consider a short binge drinking period of, you know, three days. So I would be laying in bed on Sunday and my mind would be racing. I would, you know, be feeling these horrible, anxious feelings and my body would like convulse and I had no control over it. And I think that was sort of like the beginnings of like, like a delirium tremens or like a DT, like a seizure kind of episode. So that's when I realized that drink, that alcohol affected my body differently. I think I realized in my, in my later 20s that, that I had a drinking problem because I had gone to the doctor at one point to get normal, like a normal physical done. And as part of that physical, they, they wanted to draw blood. So I went to the lab and had my blood drawn and went to see the doctor a week later after he got the test results back. And he, his first question to me was, how much do you drink? Wow. And I said, yeah, which was, you know, that kind of threw me off. I was thinking that, oh, you're, he's going to tell me you're in your 20s and everything is in peak physical condition and you're all, you're all good. Yeah, and you but weren't even I, in there for I, anything drinking related, right? Nope, just a normal physical. Wow. So he asked me how much I drank. And my immediate response was, as much as everybody else. <laughs> you know, yeah. everybody was kung um, fu fighting, right? <laughs> everybody drinks. Yeah, yeah, right. And he says, "Well, how much does that mean?" And I was like, "I don't know." You know, like a couple a night. And in reality, you know, at this point, I was drinking. I mean, I was drinking less than I ended up drinking before I finally quit. But I was probably drinking seven beers a night, and not like Bud Lights, but like you know, like heavy craft beer mm-hmm. that really count as like two regular beers. But I told him, you know, a couple a night. And he says, well, what does a couple of night mean exactly? 
I was like, uh, you know, like three or four a night. And he's like, well, what about on the weekend? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I drink socially on the weekend. Yeah. And I was doing everything possible to avoid answering the question. And he kept pressing me. And so finally I just made up a number. Uh, I don't know, 21 drinks a week. And that's already far and beyond what you're supposed to be drinking. Well, Ryan, I've, I've so had he, a couple of doctors and psychiatrists, psychologists on the podcast. And there's like this internal rule that we don't know about. So he probably took that 21 and times it by three. And in his mind, he's like, okay, this guy's drinking 63 drinks a week. That's probably what he yeah. landed at. Right. And he probably would be low at that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> which think. is crazy. Because, uh, you know, on the weekends, it's all, all bets are off. Totally. You know. Game on. Right. So he gave me a, a homework project. He said, I want you to go and not drink for 30 days, and then we're going to redo this blood test because I'm worried about some of the levels of enzymes in your blood. And I'm like, okay, a month. All right. That doesn't sound like such a big deal. And that's when I realized I couldn't not drink. Hmm. And how long uh, into the you 30 know, the next days day when, did you realize that? 18 hours. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. until until the next day after work when I would normally, you know, come home and drink three beers quickly to sort of get rid of the jitters, and I just kept putting that that homework assignment off and off and off, you know, thinking, oh well, if I just give it three weeks, that'll be enough time to clear my. Oh, you know, if I just give it two weeks, you know, and then another week goes by, until uh, finally I'm like, you know what, I'm just not going to go back to the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Solved one problem so and potentially did. created many more problems. Right. I mean, I was just protecting my drinking. I was, I was that scared to quit. Hmm. You know, here's a doctor, and this isn't even the worst doctor's visit I had, but here's a doctor telling me, you need to stop drinking and we'll rerun tests on you. And all you got to do is stop drinking for 30 days. But I could not do it. Physically, I could not do it. And I didn't know why. And so what age were why. you about when that happened? You said 20s. It must have been 28 or 29. Okay. Okay, 28, 29. Uh, I mean, the doctor just called you out on your drinking, and he's probably thinking in his head, "All right, this guy's drinking sixty to seventy drinks a week." You were told that you know it's 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 definitely affecting your physical health, and you continue to drink till thirty four. So, tell us about that time frame from the doctor until you quit drinking. And before I hit the record button, you mentioned there was a, another sobriety stint in there as well. But yeah, tell us more about that. Sure. Yeah, between that doctor's visit and and when I finally stopped drinking, a lot happened. I tried a lot of different things. I went and saw a therapist who diagnosed me as being depressed, which I never really felt like I was a depressed person, but uh, mm-hmm. diagnosed me as being depressed and put me on antidepressants along with Ativan, which is uh, like a benzodiazepine. Mm-hmm. Xanax, Valium, and that, sort of, of that class of medication, yeah. Exactly, and that was to sort of take care of the, the anxiety because, you know, when I went and saw this therapist, the, the, the drinking definitely wasn't the problem. It was, uh, it was work or it was I'm stressed or it was every other excuse in the book, but it, it never was the drinking. That wasn't the reason I was there to see him. So I tried that for, I don't know, a couple of years, and the drinking never, never stopped. So when he put me on these antidepressants, like one of the first, it was probably within the first week, it was like a Friday night. My wife and I were in our apartment, and I drank probably a bottle of wine and started like having this like psychotic episode. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not supposed to drink when you're on these medications, by the way. Like, that's, like, the first thing that you hear in all the commercials is don't yeah. drink while taking X. Mm-hmm. So I was I was drinking heavily while taking this medication and started, he, like, hearing voices and having, like, a psychotic episode. So called the next day. He said, you know, don't take, don't take that anymore. Take the Ativan if you start feeling anxiety, and we'll treat it that way. So, so that's what I did. I kept drinking heavily. I took the medications that 
you know, this doctor prescribed because, you know, it made me feel good. And then in late 2012, 12 or 13, we moved to Chicago mm-hmm. because my wife got a job there. Like her, her job actually transferred her up there to go and lead her, the department at the office that she works at. They have a Chicago office, so they sent her there to lead that, that uh, office. We moved her up there in November, and I stayed back here in Dallas and kind of finished out the year at my job. And then I left my job and went up there with kind of knowing nobody, with no prospects, thinking, oh, I'll just sort of like find another job when I get there, which ended up happening, and everything worked out well well with, with that. But there was that about a month while where she was in Chicago and I was still here in Dallas, where, you know, there was nobody there to sort of keep an eye on me. And that's mm-hmm. where my drinking, I felt like, started making the, like, the foot just, you know, mash the pedal to the metal. Um, because, you know, before, you know, almost my whole drinking career, I would make it a rule for myself that I, you know, I wouldn't bring liquor into the house because liquor was just a disaster for me. I just couldn't handle it. I, I would drink it way too fast and I drink way too much of it. Mm-hmm. But while she was gone and I was there by myself, I was sort of left to my own devices. And I started like, you know, instead of buying beer, I'd buy alcohol because in my mind, I was rationalizing it as, well, it's cheaper. And it's, you know, there's not as many, there's not as many calories in it. You don't have to drink as much of it. All these ways of rationalizing it. And really all it did was make my body like even more dependent on alcohol than it already was. Yeah. So I moved to Chicago in late December of, of 13. It was, it was, a, it was a 2013. And I didn't have a job, so it was my job to find a job. But that meant that I was at home all day by myself. Again, left to my own device. Sure, just, um, just a laptop, monsterjobs.com, Craigslist, and uh, probably some beer cans. Beer cans and, and vodka bottles, for yeah. sure. You know, it got it got to the point where, like, you know, I wake up, you know, hungover every single day, it seemed like. And the the nerves and the anxiety were just, like, eating me alive. So that, that first drink of the day started getting earlier and earlier and earlier. And, and in my mind, I could rationalize it. You know, this is the only thing that's going to make me feel better. Mm-hmm. And as long as I'm sober by, you know, 5.30 or 6 o'clock or, or sober-ish by 5.30 or 6 o'clock, you know, I can, I can sort of get away with it. Yeah, when, when your wife comes home. Um, exactly. Exactly, yeah. And so the drinking just, like, it just accelerated from there to the point where, you know, at one point I had sort of rationalized it to my wife that, you know, I can handle a bottle of vodka in the freezer and, and this, that, and the other. But really what was happening is I was putting a bottle of vodka in the freezer and I was drinking it when nobody was looking. And I had another bottle stashed in our bedroom where I, I would refill the bottle that's in the freezer to try to, you know, trick my wife into thinking that I hadn't drank as much as I had. And, you know, beyond that, I, I just started hiding it. I had several hiding spots that I would keep my liquor in. And that way I could self-medicate and also not get in trouble for it. Gosh, when you talk about that anxiety, um, you know, to, to drink, to just calm the nerves. And there was a time in my life where I drank to feel good and I enjoyed it. I was a normal drinker for probably five to six years. But then that switched to a time where I had to drink to just feel normal, to just to function, to, to walk, to breathe absolutely. without the discomfort flooding in. And just hearing you describe that as a painful moment. And it sounds like you got a three-year-old kiddo, and I'm, I, we've had some yeah. dialogue before we hit the record button. There were some some promises made to yourself that okay, I, I've, I've, the birth of my son just happened. Today is the day, and and tell us more about that whole experience for you. Yeah, so just backing it up a little, little bit. The the morning that my wife told me she was pregnant, I remember it was early in the morning. 
I was laying in bed and she comes in and she's just glowing and she has this big smile on her face and she's holding the pregnancy test and she tells me I'm pregnant and she's just so happy and and it like hit me like a ton of bricks you know like holy shit I was excited but I was also just terrified because I don't know how to be a father I don't know how to be anything other than you know a person with no responsibility and also this means that shit's about to get real like I have to kick this habit in order to be a father so it was that morning I made a pact to myself, okay, I've got nine months to, to figure this out, to taper off, to do whatever I've got to do to, to stop drinking. And, and that's when it got really bad because every single morning I would wake up and I would be in just total despair from the promises I made to myself that I broke the night before. So I wake up every morning saying to myself, okay, today's a day I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink as much as I did yesterday. I'm serious about it today. And at 5.30 or sooner every single day, after that, I would be drinking. And so it was just this vicious cycle of promises being broken that I've made to myself and then drinking to sort of numb the feelings of, of despair. And yeah. so it's like I, you know, I, I told, told my therapist before, it was like I relapsed every single day for that entire period. Gosh, and that's when you insert cognitive dissonance, insert self-loathing, insert or adios self-confidence, and you, you just... You think you're broken. You think there's something terribly wrong with you. And I, I know this because I went through the exact same moment. And, and at this moment now, I mean, there is nothing wrong with you, Ryan. There's nothing wrong with me. There's probably nothing wrong with anybody listening to this podcast who has a drinking problem. Nothing at all. It's, it's an addictive drug. And you mentioned the, the taper down process or taper off in the next nine months. You already told me your sobriety date's one one sixteen, so I, I know, and right. I know how that narrative goes. It just doesn't work. And so the the your, your no. kiddo comes, and what happened after that? Right. So as as the due date got closer, I started getting more and more afraid because first I was afraid of getting that getting woke up by my wife at two o'clock in the morning, having to make that drive to the hospital because you know, uh, ten times out of ten I would have woken up drunk. Yeah. So I was I was really scared about that happening. But I was also really scared about being stuck in the hospital for an extended period of time without access to alcohol because I, would, I was drinking so much at that point that if I quit drinking suddenly, I could have went through a fatal withdrawal. Mm -hmm. So as part of my go bag, I packed two bottles of vodka uh, in the bottom of my duffel. And about a week before the due date, you know, they decided to induce. So I went home from work, got my go bag, rode the train back uh, down to the hospital and for the next two days in the hospital, I drank vodka with quantities almost like the same as before. So this is like the, the worst memory. I mean, you know, you're going to ask what's your worst memory from drinking. But like my worst memory is definitely being drunk for the birth of my, of my son. Gosh, in a moment where usually you're what you see on TV, you hear from friends and others that don't have drinking problems is a moment where we're in the moment and it's this incredible moment and I, i've had several of these times that you know life things that should have been awesome that were robbed for me from alcohol and i get it and gosh it's painful to hear but i, I i'm so glad you, it's like i'm just going to my mind i'm like god there is a happy ending to this but let's let's move forward from yeah what happened after that yeah. the baby's born and we'll keep yeah. going right so we come home from the hospital and i had you know hit like i i had bottles hidden around the house already and so for that first two weeks, I tried doing what I was doing before, which was to drink about, you know, a half of a bottle of vodka a day just to keep the, the feelings of withdrawal at bay and, and, you know, sort of feel comfortable in my own skin. But after a week and a half on paternity leave, that, that wasn't working. So, you know, luckily, 
I was drunk one night and I was super exhausted from not sleeping and I was super emotional and I just started crying and I told my wife, my, I told Becky what was going on and like she just kicks into we got to fix this mode because that's the type of person she is. She's a very A-type personality. Mm-hmm. If there's a problem, I mean, she fixes it. And so like the next day she made appointments for me at, at a doctor to get, you know, another physical she made appointments for me to go see a therapist. She sort of like laid the groundwork for my recovery, which I, I hope she understands how appreciative I am of that because it's, you know, it's the reason I'm alive today, really. She sets up an appointment for me to go to a physical. So I go there and the doctor, you know, does the blood work again. Sort of the same thing happens. She calls me back in. I go in and she says, I'm, I'm worried about your blood work. She says, you don't have cirrhosis yet. But if you keep drinking the way you're drinking, you will have it. And, wow. and all I heard in that sentence was, you don't have cirrhosis yet. Yeah. <laughs> Emphasize yeah. yet. So, yeah. So that meant to me it was kind of still okay. So I continued drinking while seeing a therapist and kind of starting to form a program at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was being told me, told me by my therapist was that you need to go to detox first. You need to go spend four or five days in detox and do a medical detox. And then you need to go get in either an intensive outpatient setting or an inpatient rehab facility. So after fighting that for, I don't know, maybe two months, I I got serious and I scheduled an appointment to go to a detox center. And that was on September the 11th of uh, 15. I remember like dumping out my liquor before going to the detox. And it was like, it was a little like saying goodbye to your best friend, like that friend that's always sort of made any party more interesting or, you know, makes you feel comfortable in an, in an uncomfortable situation. It was like saying goodbye to that friend. It was really kind of a awkward emotional experience for me to dump the liquor down the drain. But I went through the, through the detox, did like four days of that, which was, you know, kind of a story in and of itself, just the people that I met there. And I lot of people there that I still keep in contact with today. And then after that four days, I immediately started a 28-day program at the uh, at the Betty Ford Center in Chicago. Is that inpatient, where outpatient? I kind of, it was outpatient. Okay. It was intensive outpatient. So it was four days a week for like three hours a night. And I sort of learned a lot about the, the scientific part of addiction and sort of started, you know, learning a little bit about, you know, like AA and, and spiritual programs and stuff like that. So through that, I kind of got introduced to AA and, you know, I was dabbling in meetings here and there. And I, I, I got a sponsor at one point. I guess it would have been in, uh, you know, a couple of months after that, I, I started working with the sponsor and working the steps. But I, I still didn't completely understand what it was going to take to quit drinking. Hmm. Because I, I kind of thought in my mind, if I can just put a little bit of time between my last drink and my next drink, that physical addiction part of it will be gone and I can just drink like a normal person. Like I'll keep it at bay. I, I kind of know what, what happened in my mind. I, I, I convinced myself, I had sort of lied to myself in my own voice that I just needed to put some time between my, my last drink and my next drink. So while I had taken that first step of, you know, admitting I had a problem, I didn't really believe it. I believe that if I could just get a little bit of sober time that I could figure out a way to, and I think that we all know that that, that doesn't, doesn't work out. Well, with most um, healing so processes, I, that is how it works out. You, get, you had a broken arm. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw a baseball with it until it heals. Up, oh, it's healed. Now I'm gonna throw a baseball. I'm totally fine. But with drinking, yeah, I mean, I tried that so many times. I'll give some time. Oh, I'm not an alcoholic and all this stuff. And gosh, I understand that. And I want to comment on what you said earlier. It's like I it, it felt like I was saying goodbye to my best friend. 
I, I mean, it might sound strange because it's not a, it's not a human being, it's not a tangible person you can hug or whatnot, but I did have to say goodbye to my best friend. And I think you did too. And a lot of us have to, and saying goodbye is hard. <laughs> it's yeah. so hard. Yeah. It's like, think, think back at all of those like really great times you had and alcohol was a part of it. You know, it's, it's made, it's made weddings more fun. It's made camping trips a blast. There's so many like emotional highs in your life and they're attached to that drug and so it's like like that drug becomes like a part of that emotion and that memory so it's like a best friend would be oh yeah and and so ryan your 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 sobriety date is about four months or a little after the inpatient treatment um yeah talk to us about that process yeah so i had a a relapse that happened in december of of uh, 14 which was a few months after i had gotten sober you know and and i have learned that 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 a relapse happens long before your first drink Mm -hmm. and i just didn't know what i didn't know what that meant until i experienced it like there are a lot of like sort of one-liner sort of cliche things that you hear in in recovery and they're just they're just that until you understand what those mean so like you know like i was saying earlier i thought that i just needed to put some time between my last drink and my next drink well right there that's that's relapsing i'm already thinking about that next drink before i've before i've taken it that's that's the relapse because this is a thinking disease, not a drinking disease. So I thought I could keep it at bay when I started again. But, you know, a few days into this relapse, I was right back where I started. I was hiding liquor. I had different hiding spots for it because I had already, you know, pointed out where my, where my old hiding spots were. But it lasted about eight days, and I was every bit as physically dependent on it as I was before I stopped. And I, like, just remember laying at my – I was at my mom's house. I was laying in the – living room by myself I had like waited for everybody to go to sleep so I could like get into the liquor cabinet like like a high school kid was here I am you know 34 years old 33 years old and I and I started crying and I was crying because I at that point I realized what I had given up by going back to drinking Hmm. and and it was all of these like like I had sort of started learning that like without alcohol like I'm capable of so much more I'm capable of being a father of you know being really good at my job of being a responsible person. And I had like given that up by picking up a drink again. Like I, I realized at that point what I was giving up by, by picking up alcohol again. And it just, it made me so sad. And not to mention, like, I felt like I had worked really hard at that first bout of sobriety, kind of gotten through a lot of those first uncomfortable feelings only to land right back. Like it was just such a huge step back. I was right back where I started. Yeah, I love what you said about, yeah, you know, I've I've said it before a couple of times is you know, the relapse happens way before the first drink. That's a huge value bomb. And the way you explained it made a lot of sense to me. If you're telling yourself, you know, oh, it's, you know, 30 days and I got a date, um, then I'll, I'll give it a go again. I mean, the relapse has kind of already happened. And I agree hundred percent with what you said. And talk to us about one, one, 2016. How'd you do it? What happened yeah. then? And, and talk about how are you doing it now? Walk us through your recovery. What does it look like yeah. today? I just want to talk about a little bit about how important that relapse was for me, I guess, because like I said, like I just didn't get that first step yet. I didn't get that I had a problem with alcohol and that I was powerless over it. I thought that I could put some time between myself and that, between my next drink and that last drink. And then I would have, I would have power over it. I would be able to control it. So for me, like that relapse was super humbling because that's when it clicked in my mind that like, I don't got this. I can't handle it. I am powerless over alcohol. And it took that relapse for that to sink in. So that relapse to me was like one of the most pivotal parts of, of my of my journey to sobriety. Yeah, and gosh, relapse was a huge part of my story. And I got to a moment where I almost took the self-loathing hat off and was like, okay, I relapsed, what can I learn now? 
and you got to that moment and you realized you are powerless over this. And I've said it too, the three most dangerous words an alcoholic can say is I got this because that's basically relapse happening again before the drink is even taken. Yeah, that's awesome. You learned that value bomb from a relapse. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and, and move us forward. Yeah. So from that relapse moving forward is when I really started getting involved with AA. I you know, started working the steps a little more seriously this time or, or more seriously this time. And I joined a group that was like a small group in Chicago. It was in, uh, in the old Irving Park neighborhood. So if anybody is listening to this, thank you. Started getting much more involved with AA at that point. And then, and then another life change happened. We ended up moving uh, back to Texas from Chicago. I got a job offer down here in Texas. So we ended up moving back. So after kind of having found a group finally that I was super comfortable with and, and really started to, to understand the kind of the basics of AA, we, we, sort of picked our life up and, and moved across country again and moved back to Dallas. And since moving back, you know, our, our lives have just become so consumed with being parents that, that that's kind of like a huge part of my recovery right now is my sobriety fuel is, is my family right now. Like I'm not currently working the steps of AA and I, and I'm not working with a sponsor, mm-hmm. but I'm, I feel like I'm working a program, I, you know, and that program is, is being healthy and being present and in the moment for my family because they deserve that. When you mentioned Becky earlier, which to me sounds like a freaking rock star, and you're a lucky man, and I think you know that, how important was it to bring your your significant other onto your recovery team, and, and what did it feel like when you finally just opened up about it? Oh, man, it was one of the most important things that, like I said, one of the most important things that I that I have done was to open up about it, and, you know, she she was mad, and it took a huge hole on our relationship but I mean like her first instinct was just we got to get you better and she learned through the process that not only does she have that not only do I need to get better but she needs to get better too so she started going to Al-Anon and learning about codependency and she would come to all the family nights that the Betty Ford Center would have so she like really immersed herself in recovery as well and and that makes her just like an unbelievable asset to me because she understands it you know, if you tell a, a, a person who doesn't have any experience with this, the way that we drink or the, the reasons that we drink, they wouldn't understand that. But if you tell my wife that, she totally gets it. Hmm. That is so she's just so been cool. such a huge part of my recovery. Wow, that is that is so cool. And and I want to comment on something you said earlier with, with the program. You said, you know, I'm not so involved in AA anymore and this and that. And, you know, but I feel I still work a program. And listeners, it's not black or white. If It's not like you're going to AA, you work a program. You don't go to AA, you're not working a program. Um, again, I have um, kind of a love-hate relationship with AA. I went to a meeting two nights ago, and it was fantastic, right? Uh, I, I'm a big fan of AA. But a program, it, it can take so many different shapes and sizes. And I saw a video posted in Cafe RE. Somebody's wondering, like, hey, am I a dry drunk? Um, you know, Am I working a program, which is basically dry drunk as someone that's not working a program, and Ryan, if, if you know, you've mentioned you listen to the podcast, you're doing an interview right now. A dry drunk wouldn't ever listen to a recovery podcast. A dry drunk wouldn't be 40 minutes into a conversation on a podcast. A dry drunk wouldn't share their interview with Becky. I hope you do so in the future. I'm, I'm sure you will. That's stuff that a, a dry drunk doesn't do. And it sounds like you're working an awesome program and a program that works for you. And, and what's, yeah. what's on your bucket list in sobriety, Ryan? And, and couple that with well, how do you plan on you know, getting another day of sobriety. What do you want to do in the future? And also, what do you want to accomplish in sobriety? What are you looking forward to in this new life? You know, first and foremost, like I said earlier, I've, 
I just want to be the best dad and husband that I can be. I want to be a good person. And to have that, I need to be sober. You nailed the bucket list item there. Watch out world team Becky and Ryan without the, uh, the drug alcohol. You guys are going to, it's, it's going to be awesome. Excited for you guys. And the next question was, how are you going to get the next day of sobriety? What's your plan moving forward? Yeah. So moving forward, it's for me, it's all about making the next right choice. I feel like if I do that, if I make the next right decision, I got nothing to be afraid of. As long as the, as long as I'm doing what I think is right, the right thing to do, and I'm being honest with myself and answering that is the, is is this the next right decision? If I can honestly answer that, then that's what I need to be doing. And also, you know, every day I need to be I need to be turning over the things that are out of my control. That's a super important part of my program. Mm-hmm. Is not to get caught up in the why me's and to understand that there are certain things in this in life that I can't control. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to try to, because if I try to, it leads me, it leads me back to the why me's, which, which will lead me back to drinking. Yeah. Those are those gravity problems that just can't help. I mean, if you're trying to fight gravity, that's a losing battle. Every time you just better say, Hey, I can't control that problem. Oh, well. And Ryan, we have reached the rapid fire round. We've actually answered a couple of these questions, but if you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Or are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Number one, Ryan, we've all heard of that aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating the gigs up? I think it was the, it was, it was in the relapse. It was, it was that time that I tried to go back to drinking and realize I don't got this and I shouldn't try to have this. <laughs> so my oh shit moment came a lot later because I was in, I was in such denial thinking all I got to do is learn how to control this. Mm-hmm. My oh shit moment came when I when I learned I can't control this, and that was part of the relapse. And Ryan, what's your favorite resource in recovery? And if you have more than one, feel free to list them. Sure. First and foremost, my biggest resource in recovery is is my family. You know, I need to be sober for them. That that's the bottom line. I need to be sober for myself, but I also I need to be sober for them. This podcast is a huge part of my recovery. It's uh, it's something that I listen to every single Monday morning, and it sort of sets my week up. So I really appreciate that. It's like I was saying before, it puts me in the right place I need to be every single Monday morning. Hey Ryan, thanks for listening. And I, I love how you mentioned your family is, is, when you're, is your favorite resource because it takes a team, a recovery portfolio, a recovery team to get sober. That's so awesome. You've involved your, your wife uh, and, and your team. That's so cool to hear. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? So in the inside cover of my big book, my, my sponsor in Chicago wrote the acronym KISS, and that means keep it simple, stupid. And that's something that I use every single day. It, it doesn't just apply to drinking. It applies to life in general. Like I feel like we have, um, or at least I have, this tendency to, to over-exaggerate everything and make, make problems bigger than they need to be. And it comes from overanalyzing situations. It, uh, it comes from, I mean, that's just the way that I am. So I just have to learn. I just have to remember that every single day I need to keep it simple, whatever it is. And Ryan, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or already taking the journey? I would say that if you can do this, you can do anything, and you can do this. If I can do it, you can do it. Yeah, and if I can do it, I'm and, just a regular and, Joe. You can do it too. Yeah. Right, and you know I've heard you've said it so many times before. But you're not giving anything up. You're, you're gaining so much more than you're giving up.
I mean, what are you really giving up? You're, you're giving up something that keeps you hostage, that holds you hostage. You're giving that, you're, you're, you're taking that out of the situation and you're getting a brand new life where you can literally do anything that you want to do. Agree 100%. And Ryan, before we depart, I think I know what's coming, <laughs> but good listeners, your own customizer, you might be an alcoholic if line. Yes. Uh, you might be an alcoholic if you end up in the hospital because you didn't drink. Yeah. that. Uh, let me go down a little. Yeah, that works. <laughs> That's definitely that you might be an alcoholic if line. Ryan, thank you for being part of my sobriety. It was a pleasure meeting you in Texas. That was so much fun. It's the best part about this is hearing from listeners and then meeting them in person. It's so cool. So thank you for taking the time to share your story with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I absolutely love hearing from people I interviewed in the past. And I want to give a shout out to Brandon Shaw, who's interviewed on episode 112 of this podcast. He hit one year of sobriety on February 1st, 2018. Nice job, Brandon. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. <laughs> 